is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand, welcome to the program. The NT Farmers Association is celebrating its 10th anniversary. And so before 1.30, we'll be catching up with current and former presidents to take a look back and a look forward at farming in the Territory. Also today, we head to the mango orchards of Catherine, where the mango season is reaching its peak. Today, we're at our packing facility down in Catherine and uh, very busy. November is our biggest uh, time of the year of harvest. And did Scott Morrison try to become Australia's Minister for Ag? We'll be talking about this soon on the Country Hour. We're broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. A group of water experts from universities around Australia have sent a letter to the Territory's Chief Minister expressing serious concerns about water planning in the NT. It comes after the Territory Government released its draft water allocation plan for the Georgina Wiso Basin. That plan it came out last week. It covers most of the Barclay region and it allocates 40% of its annual recharge for use by industry. Now, this letter urges the Chief Minister to hold all new extraction licences until comprehensive data on groundwater and surface water interactions have been obtained. Emeritus Professor Barry Hart from Monash University was a panellist on the scientific inquiry into fracking back in 2018 and says the NT's water policy is way behind other jurisdictions. They are way out of kilter. They have been told for many, many years that they do not equate with what are required by the National Water Initiative, National Water Initiative Guidelines. All of of the other uh, jurisdictions, Australian jurisdictions, uh, have arranged their water resource uh, acts to be equivalent to what is required by the National Water Initiative. Northern Territory do not. We, in the Pepper Inquiry, we said they should do that and a, and a whole raft of other things to do with water. Uh, and as I say, the Productivity Commission, the National Water Commission, before they were were uh, disbanded. Um, I mean, there's been many, many over the years, many, many groups um, who have urged the NT government to, uh, uh, to upgrade their water resource uh, legislation. Emeritus Professor Barry Hart from Monash University. Now, another signatory, and there were 18 in total, was Professor Sue Jackson from Griffith University. She spoke to Jono Gibson about the group's concerns. Well, we're very concerned that Northern Territory's record of water planning does not meet national standards. And in the recent decision to release a water allocation plan for the Beetaloo, we see a very significant departure from these national standards and uh, we're most concerned that um, the Northern Territory is putting at risk very important ecological and cultural values in the way in which it's regulating and licensing water. What specifically is concerning within the plan? Is it being rushed? Has it not? Have there not been enough studies done? Well, the Georgina... Why so water allocation plan, um, we believe, breaches water planning guidelines of national water policy 
um, because it hasn't established a water advisory committee to oversight the production of the plan. There's been no public input into the plan. There are no environmental or cultural requirements for the water resource and there are no trigger rules for assessing unacceptable impacts. There's a very, um, there's a, there's a very weak scientific basis underpinning the plan um, and we're very concerned that potential impacts to groundwater-dependent ecosystems have been completely overlooked. How unusual is it for a group of 18 scientists or water experts to pen a letter like this? Well, I think it does speak to the, um, the strength of our concerns about the way in which the Northern Territory is regulating water. Um, for many, many years, it has been relying on um, a set of rules, a set of um, arbitrary rules for allocating water instead of following robust and rigorous water planning processes. So most of the water that is licensed in the Northern Territory is licensed outside of water allocation plan areas. And this really undermines the intention of national water policy to protect precious water resources, to provide a means for um, the scientists and the community to be confident of the um, sustainability of water extraction and for the public to be involved in setting priorities for water use. So this is a really very, very significant departure uh, and the signatories to this letter are shocked that the Northern Territory would move so far from national policy that was agreed to 20 years ago. And this is specifically in relation to the, um, the allocation plan in the Beedaloo area? It is, but it all, our letter also concerns the, um, a number of licensing decisions recently that relate to the Larimer area where the Northern Territory Government is using um, a rule that is not a principle under a rule that is not used in any other jurisdiction that we're aware of for assessing the sustainable yield. So there are scientific concerns about the way in which uh, the Northern Territory Government is assessing the amount of water that it considers can be used by industry. What are you calling for from the Northern Territory Government? Well, we, we're calling for a number of... Recommend, we make a number of recommendations and, and request that the Chief Minister halt issuing water licences until data on groundwater surface water interactions um, and the needs of the ecological and cultural values in the Territory have been comprehensively assessed so we basically say that the government needs to abandon the contingent allocation framework and move to robust, rigorous assessment of the water needs of environment and, and communities um, and to dedicate resources to conducting thorough studies of the sustainable yield of water catchments. And crucially, it has to establish consultative committees for all water allocation plans as it's expected to do under national water policy, so that we hear, seek, we can hear all voices uh, expressing their views in water planning processes. Professor Sue Jackson speaking there to Jano Gibson, a spokeswoman for Chief Minister Natasha Files, said the government had delivered significant reforms to the allocation and use of water in the territory, and that we are also developing a comprehensive, long-term strategic water plan which will look at sustainable water for all regions. 
the draft plan for the Georgina Wiso Basin. It's open for public consultation until December 18. You can read more about this story up online right now if you search for NT Country Hour. G'day, I'm Jermaine. G'day, I'm Caleb. And we're from Territory Bees. We're out here in Darwin's rural area attending to some hives and you're listening to the Country Hour. Two to one on a Friday lunchtime. I trust you are well. If you're interested to learn more about that draft water allocation plan for the Georgina Wiso, it was this time last week where we had a chance to speak to Amy Dysart, the Executive Director of Water Resources. Uh, she spoke to us about the plan. We also had a chat to Paul Burke from NT Farmers. So that'll be on Friday's podcast from last week if you are interested. Now, there's a growing list of cattle stations in the Territory that are getting involved in carbon farming projects. Some stations are doing all of the work by themselves. Others are partnering up with carbon service providers. So, for example, in central Arnhem Land, Monaroo Station has been earning carbon credits since 2015 via the Savannah Fire methodology and it's working alongside a company that's called South Pole Australia. I caught up with South Pole's Will Hemmel to learn more about the company and what it does. Yeah, so South Pole itself was started in 2006 by a bunch of uni students in Switzerland. As global climate ambitions grown, so as a company, we've now got over a thousand staff in 50 countries around the world. So um, we've been in Australia since 2016, and we do a few projects here, but most of our work is um, in Asia, Africa, Central America. That's where we do most of our work. And one project is here in the Northern Territory. You're doing some work at Minoru Station, which is in Central Arnhem Land. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Minoru Station, Danny and Kath Hayes, they're located about 250 kilometres east of Catherine. They run a, a cattle property, primarily a beef cattle business, uh, but harvest some buffalo on the place. And they've been running a savannah fire management program there since 2015. Uh, that's a, a project under the Emissions Reduction Fund, um, and it's what it's been doing is shifting the burning regime on the property through good fire management from a predominantly late season burns to more early cool cool burns and Danny and Cathy have been implementing fire breaks building their fire management capacity and preventing those late season hot wildfires which emit um, large amounts of carbon dioxide. By doing that they're able to earn carbon credits under the emissions reduction fund and they've been selling those credits into the open market to earn money. And so your company, South Pole, how do you fit into that? Yeah, so South Pole is what's described as a carbon service provider or a project developer. We support landholders to navigate the complexity of the Australian Government's Emissions Reduction Fund. So what we do... if we're being honest, has changed a bit over the years, hasn't it? Yeah, so there's been some changes and methods are always being updated. So our role is to support the project to be registered... uh, meet its annual reporting and compliance requirements to ensure the credits are issued and then with, when, once those credits are issued we place them into the market primarily with private buyers. The Savannah burning methodology has been around for quite a long time in the Northern Territory and, and has successfully generated an income for, for cattle producers, for Indigenous 
land managers. Where do you see that methodology going in the next sort of five to ten years? Yeah, it's a good question. So the Australian government has flagged that it will uh, release an update to the methodology in 2023, which will add a sequestration component. So currently it's an avoidance methodology where uh, landholders are rewarded for the emissions that are avoided from shifting the burns from the late season to the early dry season or reducing overall fire pressure. Um, But the updated method will have a sequestration component as well. So account for the standing biomass essentially that's left after the burns. So um, it will uh, in some instances provide landholders with additional revenue and it, from uh, additional credits generated. And we've recently heard from someone on the country hour telling cattle producers, geez, when it comes to carbon credits, hold on to them. You might need them um, for future ability to sell into markets. Do you have any thoughts in that space? Yeah, it's, it's certainly a trend that we're seeing. So producers, primary producers wanting to what's called insetting now, so keep those uh, credits to make claims against the own business around, their own business around being carbon neutral, for instance. And we're seeing also, I guess, the, the big, the coals and woolies of the world pushing... Uh, There's carbon neutral beef now in the supermarket, I've seen it. Yeah. So they'll push that up their supply chain. Um, it's, it's certainly an option for producers. Um, the one thing to consider is that uh, carbon credits are the inverse of wine. They, the vintages don't age well. So carbon credits from 10 years ago aren't worth what carbon credits produced today are worth in the market. Thanks for your time. Cheers. That's Will Hamill, who's a carbon specialist with the company South Pole Australia. This week on Landline, farming off the grid. We use roughly about 17,000 kilowatts uh, of energy a year, uh, which equates to you know, $4,500, $5,000 electricity cost that we save every year. And celebrating the work of country creators. I think it's about making something and sharing it with other people and it brings people together. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And the marker report. How good is the market report? Actually, this Sunday is the last landline episode for the year. And on the market report, we'll be taking a look at the biggest shock to livestock prices in 2022. It wasn't the start of the war in Ukraine. It wasn't the flooding in Southeast Australia or the drought in the US. What was the biggest shock, the biggest jolt to Australian livestock prices this year? Tune in on Sunday for that one. Now, still to come on today's Country Hour, we'll be talking turkeys. We will be picking some mangoes out near Catherine. And up next, did Scott Morrison really try to become Australia's Ag Minister? We'll chat about this after some whaling. It is 12 to 1. You are tuned into the Country Hour. An inquiry into former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's secret cabinet appointments has today handed down its findings. So you might remember Scott Morrison, during his term, had himself sworn into five different portfolios, and no one seemed to be aware of this, including people in his own cabinet. Former High Court Justice Virginia Bell recommended new laws requiring public notice of ministerial appointments. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says the inquiry has found that Scott Morrison 
considered appointing himself to administer the Department of Agriculture. What we now know from this report today and is revealed by the report is that Scott Morrison also sought advice at the same time on being appointed to administer the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, but ultimately decided not to proceed. Mr Morrison did not agree to meet with Virginia Bell and communicated only through his lawyers. That contradicts the very clear statement that Scott Morrison said when this inquiry was announced, and I think will come as a surprise to people who took those comments at face value. Ms Bell described Scott Morrison's various accounts and explanations for his conduct, to quote the report, as not easy to understand and difficult to reconcile when she has examined the facts. Ms Bell confirms that none of the relevant ministers were informed at the time of the appointment. The ministers for Home Affairs and the Treasurer did not learn of the appointments until the revelations post the election. The Department Secretaries of Health, Finance, Home Affairs and Treasury were not informed. Neither was the Chief Medical Officer. Uh, Ms Bell and other senior public servants quoted in the report described Scott Morrison's appointments in a range of ways. One of the clear quotes is, it was an exorbitant grab by Morrison and Parliament couldn't hold him to account. It's described as bizarre, extremely irregular, unusual and constituting a serious deficiency in governance arrangements. When it comes to the government's response uh, to this report, uh, I will recommend to the meeting of Cabinet next week that our government implement all six recommendations of the Bell Inquiry to restore the Australian people's faith in our democratic institutions. That is the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. That report is out today. You can read more about it on the ABC News website. Our text number here at the Country Hour is 0487 1057. And I've got a message here from Lewis in Alice Springs who says, Matt, I think the pronunciation of the Wiseo Basin is Wiseo, not Wiso. At least when I was at the Warrego mine in the 1980s, that's how we pronounced it for the Wiso well that we drew water from, says Lewis. Lewis, I like your text. Last week, when we broke the news of this draft water allocation plan, I pronounced it the Wiso Basin and eventually got told, no, that is not it, it's Wiso. And the Territory's own Minister for Environment has been describing it as the Wiso Basin. But Lewis, your text has got some historical background to it. I like that. So it's back to the drawing board for the country. Our producer, Dan, has made a bunch of calls. We will get to the bottom of this. We originally went with Wiso. So thank you, Lewis. And we'll have an answer soon. Good day. This is Wayne Quat. I'm the mango growers in Antique from Berry Springs, Lama Lagoon, Acacia, Lake Bennett to Pine Creeks. Uh, you're listening to Country Hour. And speaking of mangoes, the season is peaking around the Catherine region with more than 370,000 trays getting picked and packed around Catherine this week. 
That's a lot of mango. Our reporter, Max Rowley, went along to one of the Territory's biggest pack-in sheds that's owned by the Nisaforo family to see how it's all going. Hi, I'm Ryan Nisaforo and I'm one of the directors at Nisaforo Farms. Today we're at our packing facility down in Catherine and uh, very busy. November is our biggest uh, time of the year of harvest. How much fruit are you taking off at the moment? Uh, big volumes, we're taking a lot of fruit, having lots of uh, weather issues. Uh, we've pulled a few delays uh, of our harvest, but uh, other than that it's been going really well. Yeah, last year was a record harvest for you. Do you think you'll match it this year? Yes, uh, this year will be hopefully another record season. We've got the volume, it all depends on uh, weather and uh, every year has its challenges and uh, labour shortage and uh, weather, but that's, that's nothing we haven't faced before. What are the weather challenges you're having? All, all of these storms around Catherine? Or? Yeah, lots of storms. Uh, every night we seem to get a bit of rain and uh, affects our picking in the morning. Uh, just got to wait for the fruit to dry before we can harvest. And how much has that held back the harvest for you then? Uh, it's held back a, a, a fair bit. Um, we've got uh, we've had rain for the last uh, week or so, pretty much every night, but it's uh, it seems to be going okay. Does that mean there's ripe fruit in the trees that you haven't been able to get at? No, our our, our trees and uh, oh our fruit seems to be going really well. Uh, got no mature fruit at this point in time and. Uh, it still seems to have lots of legs, so lots of, uh, lots of time. A good thing about clips, so it hangs a lot longer on the tree. It's perfect for us, uh, for our, our harvest. The fruit that you are picking, managing to get picked, um, how is it selling in the markets? Uh, really good. Uh, there has been uh, a short uh, supply in mangoes uh, this season so far, and it's been, yeah, we've got Queensland starting. Uh, we'll, we'll put a bare, fair bit of volume onto the market. So short supply means good prices uh, so far this season? Yes, uh, the prices have been uh, very, very good and uh, it's, uh, it's, we've been pretty fortunate. I know second grade fruit hasn't been selling too well uh, for a number of growers. Have you had similar issues with that? No, we haven't. A uh, good thing about our clips though is they're just beautiful fruit and they seem to be more hardy, they can seem to handle the weather uh, and any lots of challenges, so uh, we actually uh, don't get too much seconds. And you mentioned the Queensland harvest, that's just starting to crank up, what will that mean for you? Yes, uh, that'll mean a big supply of mangoes into the uh, store chain, uh, but it seems to be, uh, it's good timing, it's all worked off region, so time is our NT season slows down is when Queensland starts cranking up. Right, so when do you wrap up your, your season here? Yeah, uh, it all depends on the weather, but at this stage we've still got a few more weeks to go. We've finished our Darwin farm, we're currently at a Catherine location, and then after that we'll be travelling to our Malaranka farm and uh, getting all the fruit off them trees. That is Ryan Nisaforo speaking there to Max Rowley. Busy, busy times in the Catherine region for mango growers. And the Mango Express should be flying out tonight if all goes to plan. And if so, there'll be a lot of clips and mangoes on that plane. And yes, 370,000 trays of mangoes due out of the Catherine region this week. The forecast for the Catherine region has dropped slightly over the last few weeks. The forecast for Catherine now sitting at around 1.9 million trays. Over in Queensland, harvest is getting underway. Bowen set to pump out more than 220,000 trays. So yes... 
tis the mango season, and no doubt you're noticing that in your supermarkets. Add festive sparkle to your garden with ABC Gardening Australia magazine. Grow a living Christmas tree and find the perfect plant gift. There's warm weather projects and tips for summer veggies. In ABC Organic Gardener, read about self-sufficiency, grow pumpkins, cool your home with trees and enjoy the calming benefits of herbs, plus the best egg-laying chooks. Gardening Australia and Organic Gardener magazines. Available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. Ah, Max's Turtle, cattle class, tow drive for Sherbet Livestock. We're all flat out. Give us plenty of room on the road and you're listening to the Country Hour. Now, quick update on the Country Hour team. If you've been tuning in every day, you might be thinking, hey, where's your Alice Springs reporter, Hugo Rickard-Bell? Well, Hugo's no longer with us because he's taken up an awesome new opportunity over in America. He's now a reporter at a radio station in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. He's, he's just pumped out his first story online. And he's keeping it rural. It's about turkeys, Dan. Yeah, he's keeping it very rural. So this story um, is about a bird flu outbreak in the state of Utah, which has killed around 700,000 turkeys. Gee. All on farms. So, yeah, it's hit around 18 different poultry farms. And, of course, not a good time uh, for turkeys because uh, there's just a big demand for them in for the Thanksgiving holiday, which is on today. Yes, so that's right. It's yeah. Thanksgiving night. So, uh, yeah, the local Department of Ag there put out all sorts of warnings to consumers to um, uh, about the price of turkeys on the up. It, and it is on the up. I saw a graph recently, and it's been on the up all year because of issues like this, and it's just getting worse, these outbreaks of bird flu. And just on the topic of Hugo... A massive congratulations to him because on the weekend just gone, Dan, he was named the NT's Young Journalist of the Year. So well done to Hugo. Yeah, that, that is wonderful news. Yeah, that was a, a great for his body of work over a period of time in the NT Media Awards. So big congratulations to Hugo. Yeah, I sent uh, the award to him and he says, I think a fair bit of the award goes to Max, Dan and yourself. And I totally agree. I mean, high tide brings up all ships. <laughs> nah, I'm just joking. Well done, Hugo. Uh, we miss him, but we wish him all the best in the US. It's now news time, one o'clock. G'day, I'm Angus Kidley Baird. I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. The NT Farmers Association is celebrating its 10th anniversary. In a moment, we'll be catching up with current and former presidents to talk all things farming. First, let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. And Vic, just looking at top-end radars this afternoon. A lot of colour, a lot going on. What can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. Um, So it has been fairly active, particularly along the... um North Coast, um, so around Coburg Peninsula, Tiwi Islands earlier this morning, but they're also getting a few storms just coming across now as well. Um, And so, yeah, even around Darwin, we're just starting to see a few showers um, popping up, which I'm expecting will be developing into storms as well. Good, good. It was frustratingly close this morning. (laughs) A lot of rain just to the north. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we had the storms went over Gunpoint and and the Tiwi Islands, and I was looking at the radar, and there's you know light echoes right on the coast. <laughs> <laughs> the weekend ahead for the territory in terms of rainfall, what is the forecast? 
Yeah, um, so we are expecting showers and storms to develop right throughout the Territory over the weekend. Um, we've got a trough that's approaching the southwest of the Territory that'll, that'll move through the southern districts, um, mainly on Sunday, but um, ahead of that we're expecting some storm activity down through the Lasseter and Simpson district. Um, and, yeah, risk of um, some severe storms with that, so potentially damaging wind gusts, um, maybe some reasonable rainfall if the if the storms sit over them, over that area for, for long enough, um, possibly even some hail in the far southwest as well. Um, and we're also going to be having a trough developing through the Barclay district um, over the weekend as well. So another focus of um, shower and thunderstorm activity through there um, and particularly Sunday and Monday getting some potentially heavy falls with some of those storms that might develop. Are you willing to say how area. many millimetres potentially? Um, so widespread you're probably going to be seeing um, 15 to 35 millimetres. Wow. Um, yeah, through those areas, mainly the northern parts. So, um, yeah, those areas that are pretty much sunny at the moment um, will look a, look a fair bit different in a couple of days' time. Um, yeah, potentially heavier falls, even up to 70 millimetres in localised areas wow. as well. wet season starting to deliver just finally. Fishos this weekend. Well, can you tell them? Yeah, um, so... Relatively light winds on the on the harbour um, this weekend. Um, generally, just those uh, westerlies starting to come in a bit. So um, yeah, a bit of a change in the wind direction over the weekend, um, and we, we've got that trough coming up. So that's going to be um, putting more of a, a westerly flow across the, the coastal waters. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time this afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Matt. That's Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. And just looking at some of the rainfall figures up to 9 o'clock this morning. And there's some decent ones here. Banban Springs Station's had 20 millimetres. Wilden Station, 35. Groot Island, 88 in the gauge. Cooley Bar Station's had 49. Rosewood Cattle Station, 29. Keep River, 15. And Gem Tree Park has recorded 9. We're talking 10 years of NT Farmers Association next. Hi, I'm Jake Stringer. I'm the manager of Kidman Spring Station and you're listening to The Country Hour. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Northern Territory Farmers Association. This organisation came about in 2012 after members voted to merge the NT Agricultural and NT Horticultural Associations. It was regarded as a very significant merger in 2012. To talk about the last 10 years and maybe what's ahead, I'm joined today by Ian Baker, who's been involved with the NT Farmers Association in many roles, the current president, Simon Smith, and Tom Harris, former president of NT Farmers Association. Thanks so much for coming into the studio, and we might start with you, Tom. Take us back to 2012. How did this merger come about? Well, it came about that we had the NT Horticultural Association, which obviously represented a um, part of the plant industries. Um, but it was in discussions with, I guess, the Northern Territory Government at the time and various growers that we probably needed a peak voice for all plant in industries, and that was inclusive of the um, ag sector. Um, so, yeah, we just started discussions. We'd actually started discussions, I reckon it was probably back, I don't know, Ian might remember, but probably back in about 2009 or eight yeah, about it's been going the going on for a while, hadn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And then finally it sort of uh, it was forced to the issue, I think. And yeah. 
So it, was, it took a while to get there, and then once we'd uh, made the decision, um, Kate Peake, who was the um, CEO of the NT Horticultural Association at the time, was really up to her to do the heavy lifting and, I guess, uh, make it make it happen in uh, liaising with the executive of the NT Ag Association. But, yeah, look, at um, after a, a fair bit of argy-bargy and backwards and forwards, we ended up with the, um, with, you know, a, a merged association. For you, Ian, why did the merger need to take place, do you think? Well, I was a bit ambivalent. I was the vice president at the time and um, all this discussion around the board meeting, I thought, oh, you know, horticulture is that. Because there wasn't much happening in broadacre cropping at the time. And, I, you know, I just sort of said, oh, well, let it happen, see what happens. Because the broadacre thing was fairly small. Um, but if you look back at where we are now, um, for the first time in a lot of our history, despite a lot of failures, we've actually got a broadacre crop industry emerging. And, um, and Alistair Tree, who had been in the department at the time, mm. he actually said something to me that I thought was very relevant. He said, we've got a very strong anti cattlemen's association that's representative of Northern Australia. NTCA became a very powerful and very well-represented organisation. Yeah, because we've got to also remember the time. It's, it's after the 2011 live yes. export ban. Yeah. Luke Bowen, the NTCA, yeah. in yeah. the headlines a lot. They really and, rose in prominence during and that so time. And so NTCA was quite... And, and, and Alistair said we need... A similar organisation in the plant industries, and I think I think um, I think it, it's worked out that way. You know, anti farmers has become, uh, you know, uh, not 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 as powerful as big as NTCA, but but a similar thing. You know, quite a quite an influential organisation. Whereas before, it's sort of a bit on the side, and it's horticulture, and oh, they're just all little fruit and veggie farmers. Well, now it's a significant organisation. And I know, think that's so interesting. I just said then about the little farms because that's really where I think the hort came from, as to probably now where the NT farmers, the representative NT farmers back in the day, a lot of things we were probably battling in Ian's early early days with NT Hort and my days with NT Hort, we had a lot of smaller growers. Yep. Um, so there was a lot of, um, yeah, I guess a lot of battling away, a lot of angst at times, but uh, things have moved. Things now, we've got a lot of larger um, corporate style farms, large family operations. But those and, smaller guys yeah. are actually, I think, the reason why we've been successful. Agree. Start small, grow big. Yep. The history that's of the, the motto, isn't it? And that's the motto, farmers. mate, and it yeah. sticks. Yeah, and it sticks. Yeah. And I think that's that's a lot of those. Not all those little guys succeeded, but all those guys out there started small and grew big. And now we've got a big industry. And the history of the failures of the past in ag have been where someone comes down and wants to start really big, and and they just can't sustain it. They can't, you know. So the, the those little guys are very very right. important. We've seen that but, time and, and time again. Sorry, mate. We've seen it time and time again with that that small becoming big. You learn the lessons. Yep. Start to you know, replicate your yep. business, maybe double your business, double your business, then you've got a large yep. operation. But yeah, we've generally and seen failures when every time people come in big, big yep. ideas, the territory, it hasn't and worked, it, and yet we've had a really successful horticulture. And that's the way the broadacre thing has developed. Mm. You know, it's lots of little guys, local guys in Douglas Daly having a shot, starting off with 50 hectares of cotton. Um, maybe then next year have 100. So they give themselves time to learn, even temporary, you know. It started with, it mucked around for three or four years with only little areas. So start small, grow big is probably the lesson out of the, out of this plant industry sector for a long, long time, going back to, you know, back to horticulture when it was very small. Uh, Simon Smith, a nursery background. Mm. What drew you to get involved with NT farmers and I guess ag politics? So I was actually on the board with Tom way back when at, Basically, NT Hort at the time had commodity groups, so it was a range. There was bananas, cut flowers, nursery was part of that. So my role was representing nursery on that umbrella organisation, and in time it morphed into NT Farmers, as these guys have explained. 
And that um, there was a point where um, there was a vacancy on the board and there was an opportunity and I was really interested to come back into it as well. Um, and there was such a great foundation that a, a number of people had set up. So I mean, it was a good stepping stone for me and I, you could see the momentum the organisation had, particularly the influence it was getting at that time with government. And I think that's you know, a lot of small growers, but the, the collective had power and I suppose it's you know, a little bit easier to come into an organisation you feel already has influence and also had a you know a strong board and a, a, a basically a strong and positive outlook. And a big new event that it uh, was driving in the Northern Food Futures Conference, Tom and Simon, I think it's fair to say, Ian Baker, sort of it was... Father of Food, yeah, the food father, Futures yeah. and... There's even an award named after you now, right. Ian Baker. Can I, can I ask you uh, to explain to our audience the idea of Food Futures and what you hope it's achieved over the last few years? So it was built – we had – was in a political environment. We had um, – the Liberal government at the time, federal, wanted to develop northern Australia. So we had Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan wanting to build dams and all sorts of stuff. And we said, hold on. We're the guys who are here on the ground and, and we're the biggest agricultural farming sector across the north – and let's think, and, and we, we were very scared, oh, well, I was concerned about we were going to get investors from China and start big and end up with nothing again, and we couldn't afford to do that. So Start Small, Grow Big was one of the philosophies behind Food Futures, but it was really about those of us in the north, both in the territory and in the Ord, the Ord guys became very important in this, having a say in the way agriculture might develop in the north, rather than just relying on what the federal government wanted to do. And it, be, it gave NT Farmers particularly a platform for leadership nationally. So, you know, we've got NFF comes up regularly, um, and the cotton industry, the grains industry, they all now see this part of the world as having some hope. And we've got some, ag- some broad acre cropping happening. And, you know, that's probably... Food Futures was influential in, in pushing that direction forward. Uh, Tom Harris, what do you think Food Futures has achieved? I think the... I think it was great to give a platform for the successes that we had in our region. That mm. was the thing. Often you heard a lot of talk about people trying right. to talk about some That's large right. failures. But yeah. Everyone's talking about failure. You talk yeah. about agriculture in the north, yeah. I had to fail. Yeah. That's exactly right. So we're able to put, you know, with the selection of the, I guess, the first um, speakers and presenters at the very first um, Food Futures that uh, Ian was a big part of organising, um, that was a real highlight to me, was showing these are the people yep. on the ground yep. that are doing it, they've invested, and they're actually continuing to invest. And some of them invested in multiple regions in our area. Yes. They might have been Kununurra. They also had investments in, in the Northern Territory. So taking some success out of Kununurra, brought it to the Territory. And that, to me, was, been, yep. it was a great base. I think the other big part of Food Futures too, Matt, is that it gave us an opportunity to invite some of the, the federal politicians up here or the ag ministers from Queensland and WA, so that pan-north approach. Yep. But to have them here for often for a few days to actually see what's on the ground and then that the, the Food Futures has evolved into the road shows as well. So we've just come, come back from you know, one in Queensland. We've had them in the Ord. We'll have one in Broome, Alice Springs, Catherine. So it's an opportunity to actually look at where those, where, I guess, where the future development lies and, and where the successes are too. And uh, I, it's been a great vehicle for NT farmers to... It raises our profile, but it gives us an opportunity to get out to the growers as well, get out to those regional areas and to, to bring some significant um, 
speakers and, and interest groups to those areas as well and to show them what's actually happening on the ground. So. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour. We're talking about the 10-year anniversary of the Northern Territory Farmers Association, speaking to former President Tom Harris, the current President Simon Smith and Ian Baker, who's done various roles with NT Farmers. Since 2012 and, and well before that, a yearly story on a show like the Country Hour a farmer's talking about not being able to find enough workers. When does this story end and how? Well, um, I might just jump in quickly Go, go for it, Simon. Having yep. just got back from Timor, and that sort of suggests how far and wide we're, we're now spreading our wings to attempt to ensure we've got labour. But an interesting point that Ian made when we spoke earlier, Matt, is that despite the, the labour challenges that we've had, we've just had record years in mangoes and melons. Um, even on last year's stats, we're over a $500 million industry across the board. and So workers are, are cobbling together a workforce in the current conditions and making or bringing in record crops. If we can somehow get... Seasonal labour seems to be the, the key to large quantities of, of workers, bringing large workers or the palm scheme. Beyond that, I think individual farmers are finding their own bespoke solutions and I think that's really important that they they'll need to continue to do that the 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 demands for labor whether they be through hospitality aged care elsewhere are enormous so solutions that work at your farm level are important NT farms Paul Burke did an enormous amount of work on bringing that plane load the first plane load into Australia of seasonal workers after COVID we'll continue as an organization to look at how we can produce solutions but at the end of the day Individual growers and businesses have to have to look at their own backyard. And or how some they do farmers things. do it very successfully. I think the majority of them. I've got to yeah, take my hat right. off to all of them. Um, there's not. There's some that have struggled, but they've still managed to have a really good year, particularly in mangoes, and you know, necessity sort of master of um, invention or whatever, and they, they have. They've found a way, and they'll continue to find a way. It's interesting. But um, do, Ian Baker, do you think the country are still talking about labour issues in ten years' time? Oh, um, yeah, I think so. But um, I think I think what Simon said is right. Uh, you have to remember we we picked record crops this year, and we only did it because it was a workforce year. Um, and I think one of the challenges for farmers is to become good labour managers, good staff managers, and um, and a lot of farmers do it well, and they get people. I can remember when I was a young bloke working on a big farm in Queensland, celery and lettuce farm. And, uh, and the owner had gone from a little farm to a big farm, and he said the biggest transition he had to make in his head was managing people. Mm. Instead of just being a farmer, he now had to manage people as well. And you have to think about the way you deal with people. But, you know, despite all the problems, we picked a record mango crop this year and a record melon crop. What do you think farming in the Northern Territory does look like in 10 years' time? Tom Harris? I think it's probably you're going to have all the same issues you've had. It's just a matter of how you how you manage them, and I, I guess that's the that's the reality. We're still going to have, you know there's probably going to be robotics and all sorts of other surveillance and drones and all these sort of things, which will take some of the labour components. Tom, that's an interesting <laughs> one. Um. But uh, but uh, yeah, I think that look, it's the same issues we've had. It was interesting then, just talking about the, the labour bit. Um, 
Going back to the NT early days, the NT Horticulture Association, we had exactly the same issues. There were still labour labour problems because the uh, man, uh, the uh, mangoes at the time were certainly a, a growing marketplace, and so um, you know you're relying on uh, flyers in the backpacker hostels. Um, those sort of thing. you know people physically go and driving buses to yep. outside the backpackers. Yeah, you had to drive into town to pick up another couple of workers. There was no there was no incident. We don't do any of that anymore. But biosecurity is still a big issue. Certainly for the north, we've got to be very aware of those sort of issues. You know, like the labour issues, the water, logistics. And again, when the labour ramped up, often sometimes the logistics hasn't or planning hasn't been good enough. And that's something now the modern farmers doing a lot better. They know they've got their crop. Uh, their estimates of their crop, when their, their peaks are going to be. So they're managing their labour in line with that logistics because that's failed in, in the past mm. um, and we're hopeful now there's better communication in all those sectors. They're, they're the challenges ahead over the next 10 years. What about some of, I guess, the opportunity that you see that oh, uh, we, we may see in 10 years? Definitely. You know, the cotton thing's going to grow um, and because the economics work and the market's right, the economics and markets are a driver. The one that no one talks much about is forestry. Um, so Tiwi Forestry is doing a great job over there, and they've had their lots of ups and downs. But um, the mo- mahogany, mahogany coming online, said, yeah, mahogany's coming online, and there's there's more opportunities for forestry around the north too, just on rain-fed forestry, you know, utilising land that not necessarily irrigation, um, but. I, you know, I, I think uh, the other thing is integration with the cattle industry. So we see in Western Australia um, a lot more people growing high-quality fodder to feed cattle, and that's transforming the cattle industry. And I know the guys in the yard told me a lot about that's what cottonseed will have, the benefits to the cattle industry. And, and I think there'll be, I think in the Territory, there'll be some lessons to learn from the West about um, feed in cattle. Um, I think you know that'll be an area of big integration in the future. I think you're right, Ian. I think there's a couple of other things that'll change, Matt, in, and we'll see in ten years' time. There'll be a lot of new varieties grown. There'll be yep. there'll be different mangoes on the shelves in supermarkets, and a lot of those will be grown in the territory. Yep. But Ian just touched on forestry. I think one of the well, I hope my great hope is that in ten years' time we're seeing a lot more uh, farming on indigenous-owned land. I think yep. forestry's definitely um, one of the, the great opportunities. But I, I, I'm hopeful there'll be other opportunities because clearly um, employment in those regional areas, opportunities for Aboriginal people, we've got some terrible social issues and some, some dysfunctional communities out there. And without gainful employment, without those opportunities in the regional areas, it's hard to see that changing. And, you know, NT Farmers has, has I guess, pivotal in that space. We try and sort of work closely with the land councils and others to provide opportunities. But I, I would think within 10 years, we, we should see some serious runs on the board in that area. Uh, new ag developments in the Northern Territory are often met with some vocal opposition. Is there a way forward for ag development that has the support of environmental groups? So I think one of the, the, the good things that NT Farmers um, attempts to do these days is to involve a range of interest groups in discussions. So a good example of that, of that is our water reference group. Now, water is, is a challenge. It's, it's got a lot of... Um, I think every person in the, the Territory has, a, has a, a, an opinion on water, all sorts of interest groups. So our reference group involves the land councils, it involves the Environment Centre, it involves the departments and power water and others because the conversations are a lot bigger than farming and it, we need to understand the perspectives of all those users yep. we need to understand yes. the perspective yep. of social license yep. um, because I think increasingly if we look back in 10 years time social license and our ability to 
um, legitimately operate will be determined by how well we, we manage messaging. Almost every farm in the Territory does a good job of managing their own property in an environmental sense, but often that's lost with sensational reporting or interest groups jumping up and down. So I think as an organisation we need to understand the issues. Probably 80% of the issues are manageable, 20% might divide, but we need to make sure we're front and centre of that conversation. And that that discussion not necessarily is in the media. It may be done, it's probably, a lot of these discussions are difficult and are better done privately. Um, So, you know, running off to the media and getting a big media release isn't the way to deal with these issues. Um, But definitely sitting down and listening to, to other perspectives is very important. There's things we as farmers can learn from the environment movement, from the fishermen, and things that they need to learn from us about the way development might happen. So I think Simon's very, very correct in saying, how do we, instead of us just sitting in our silo, we need to engage widely. If, if I can, Matt, a plug for the last week's report on overland flow capture policy and so forth. I know Ian was part of that and David Chiravallo, but to me that was a, a, obviously a really mature um, a policy development, if you like, I thought it you know, was was considered. It involved all interest groups. It may not have pleased everyone, but I think we got to a point where it enabled farming to continue, but at a level and an understanding of um, you know water um, take and so forth that that was balanced and was appropriate. And I think that's important for us going forward that we have a pr- sort of precautionary approach. And again, it's that sort of start small, grow big dams on iconic rivers, sort of large-scale clearing, those sort of things are no. going to set us aside from or set us apart from a lot of the, the NT population. And that's not what we want to do. We want farming to be accepted, farming to be seen as integral to the Territory's development, and we have a role to make sure that that's, that's the way it is and that, that people come along for the with us on the journey rather than feel that we're, we're just, you know, profiteering or, or you know, yeah, environmental in, vandal. NT Farmers AGM is on next month. Thanks so much for your time today on the Country Hour. Thanks, Thank you. Okay, mate. Simon Smith, the current president of the NT Farmers Association, former president Tom Harris and Ian Baker, a jack of all trades, the NT Farmers Association, celebrating its 10th anniversary. And yes, its AGM is on Friday, December 9 at the Humpty Doo Golf Club. Kicks off at about 4, 4.30, so make sure you get along to that. Now that is it for today's Country Hour and that's it for me for a while. I will be back in the new year but the Brand family are heading off on holidays. It's been a big year for the Brands. We've welcomed little Jack into the family which has been wonderful. So yes, now taking some time off to be with the family, take a break, spend a bit of time on the family farm and very much looking forward to that. I hope Christmas treats you well, and I hope the wet season treats you kindly. We're starting to get a bit of rain in the north. Big rain's due out in the Barkley this weekend, which is wonderful. So may that continue. Let's have a big wet season, hey? I hope you've enjoyed the Country Hour this year. I love the program. I hope you do too. And I'll see you back here in 2023 for more Country Hour. Looking forward to it. All the best. It'll be Dan Fitzgerald and Michelle Stanley looking after the program while I'm away. Keep it rural.